morning all i'm talking to you from <laughs> mlc central in in uh, humble texas beautiful humble texas and uh today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh how to inspect uh, both pre-owned and new foundations and uh just be aware that uh, uh as the slide says uh, that's up on your screen that this is uh I actually put a negative in there, a double negative, reporting a la Trek. Well, Trek doesn't license you to do this type of inspection. This one is strictly for uh, you and your client uh, in terms of the reporting. And today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how to uh, reduce your liability and your responsibilities, because you need to remember that that uh, the foundation is the basis of your customer's uh, investment and we need to do it right so in order to do it right you got to know what you're doing so we're going to take a little trip around the forms today learn a little bit about them we're going to uh, uh, look at how to inspect them and what to look for and and what shouldn't be there and what should be there and then uh interspersed in there we will also be looking at some pre-owned homes with stuff on the outside and we're going to learn why uh it is uh um, showing on on the uh, on the outside of the forms, or maybe why the foundations do what they do in terms of uh, function. So anyway, with that, we just get right into it. Basics of uh, post tension foundations, which is our our focus today, is that most post tension slabs are hybrids. Actually, they have the cables that get. Uh, tensioned and we will talk about that a little bit later but they also have rebar in them and the whole purpose of a, a foundation is to be able to support what's on top of it based on the soil conditions underneath it and so if you have moving soils underneath and we have that all over texas some places not but many places it moves very badly or a lot and um excuse me the rebar will help to stiffen it as well as the the, uh, the post-tension cables, but the post-tension cables also provided a little bit of flexibility. And it, in fact, that flexibility has given it its, uh, its uh, nickname of a floating foundation. Uh, the install and inspection of, a, of a fa any foundation starts with plans. And plans require you to be able to read plans. So if you can't read plans, this is not a course on how to read plans, but you need to learn that. Otherwise, you won't know what you're doing. These plans also need to be uh, uh, prepared by a, a structural engineer. And we do engineering based on the IRC, or excuse me, we engineer foundations based on requirements of the, of the IRC. There are also prescriptive uh, install instructions in the IRC, but rarely are they ever followed. Most everybody goes to a, an engineer. Concrete is not poured ever, it is placed. And we'll find out a little bit later as we go along that uh, concrete is a big, heavy uh, uh, substance that pushes things around, plastic, dirt, cables, and we'll see that as we go along. Once the foundation is ready to place concrete, it's not 
it, it's not possible for them to wait for you to get there for a couple of days because you need a little lead time. It's, it is uh, time is of the essence and you need to put concrete in it as soon as possible because it begins to deteriorate as soon as it's, uh, as soon as it's completed. Just remember always, this is the basis of your client's investment. So it's a big deal and you're taking on a lot of responsibility for your clients. This is not just going out and doing something and collecting a check. You have a responsibility to your, to your client as you always do. Okay, there's some of the hybrid. Um, there we can see the red cables and they're crossing. It looks like uh, one's down in the bottom of a ditch. That ditch is called a beam and we'll cover that in a little while. And the two that cross are on top of the, uh, the beam and then you have uh, some rebar on top of that. Please notice that that rebar crosses those, crosses those cables um, and it should be tied to those cables as long as it's in, con when in contact with them. I'm gonna move fairly quickly. This is a, 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 a picture of why we use an engineer. And sometimes even the engineers go wrong, but th this is the Bay Bridge uh, between, I believe, Delaware and, uh, and uh, Maryland, I think. And uh, they, they had a little bit of an issue here, as you can see, That's, but we, <laughs> we don't just wing it. We depend on engineers and surveyors and a lot of other people to get these uh, foundations in properly. Okay, a peek at the plans. Notice in the bottom left, we have an engineer's stamp and a signature. That's a big deal. If, if it doesn't have an engineer's stamp and, and, and uh, signature on it, it's not engineered. I don't care how pretty it looks or how close to this it looks. Notice on this one, it says, uh, it's a little bit off the thing, but something 002 Aurora Park Lane. So in addition to the engineer's stamp, it also needs a specific address and why. And the reason why is because the engineer, <clears throat> excuse me, should engineer the foundation for the amount of stiffness or support capability that it needs for that specific lot and specific soil type so it can resist movement in the soil. The first, let me backtrack here. This is uh, just a, um, an example of the foundation. You can see the overall on it. It's got plenty of dimensions on it and it's got some dotted lines that run <coughs> latitudinally and longitudinally. Uh, those are the beams that I talked about a little bit earlier. We'll get into that a little more as we go along. This is the second sheet of a foundation plan and it's called the beam detail. And each beams that I just mentioned are detailed in here because there's different ones. Obviously there's different ones in a garage than there would be in the middle of a foundation. Not so much in terms of depth, depth but in terms of how they uh, um, work when you have say a car stop, a step down. Okay, this is what I meant by place, not poor. Now, 
<clears throat> I was a builder many years ago. I've been inspecting for about a little over 31 years now. But uh, 15 years before that, which of course makes me about 29 now, um, we didn't use these pump trucks, but all of the builders use these pump trucks now. It was uh, <laughs> a brief funny story. The, the concrete truck you see on the left, they were required to jump the curb and get right up to the form uh, that you see the guy in the uh, kind of a turquoise shirt on in the back there and uh, or in the center of the picture, just past the Skiddo can. That's a Corpus term, by the way. Skiddo cans were born in Corpus Christi, Texas, in case you didn't know. Um, uh, anyway, it's it gets pretty muddy out there when you're in construction, as you, as you probably know. And sometimes those trucks had to make a run and leap at the form. And at one time we had one who jumped the curb full blast and those uh, barrels that the concrete comes in uh, from the plant, uh, those are not attached. Those are just sitting on, on uh, uh, ball bearings really. And this thing jumped off the truck and goes, because they're turning, mixing the concrete, goes rolling across the, uh, the field. It was uh, pretty spectacular. Didn't have cell phones with cameras in them then, but I wish we had, it would have made a great shot. Anyway, these uh, pump trucks uh, move the uh, arm around to where they can actually place it where it needs to be. Honestly, they do give a little better mix too, because so uh, I may be preempting myself, but when the concrete is, is mixed at the plant, it goes in that big hopper on at the top on the back of the truck and they just dump cement, sand, aggregate and water in there. And then the truck is off to the to wherever it's going to uh, put the concrete or take the concrete. They don't mix it. So it's all about the mixing in the truck. And let me tell you what, they are not turning that barrel very fast when they're driving a little bit, but not very fast because it'll tip the truck over. So when they get to the, the location, as you see on the picture here, they need to turn it high speed and give it a chance to mix. That is the difference between good concrete and bad concrete many times. And sometimes it'll come out of that truck unmixed and it'll be dry as a bone on top. And the, the um, concrete finisher will go, add 10, add 20 gallons of water in there. And that just weakens the concrete. So sometimes it's just as simple as turning the truck when it gets on site. Probably this is something you won't do as part of your inspection, but uh, just you, you know, need to know that there's a difference between good concrete placement and bad. Hey, Mike, you got a question? Sure. Uh, someone's saying, are, are you checking all the dimensions per plan whenever you're doing a pre-pour inspection? S stay with me. I'll get, I'll get there, but it's a good question. And it's um, one for myself that I, I, you know what, I'll just take a minute and answer it. I don't, the only dimensions I take are those beam depths, because those are the critical ones, according to the engineer. It's my sense and I do put this on the report, it's my sense that the builder needs to take some responsibility some responsibility in this and do some of the simple measurements. And that's one of them. So no, I don't measure the outside, but I do measure where the beams are and the depth and the width of those beams, because that's absolutely critical for carrying the weight of the house that you're gonna put on it. 
Okay, garage car stop. That uh, step up on the front porch that you see there and the garage are both created by two by fours and two by sixes where the concrete steps up and steps down. That's something that you wanna look for. Early on in my building career, thankfully it wasn't my house, the concrete makeup guy that, that does the form sets, uh, he, <laughs> he form set the garage about five feet too short. Nobody noticed it until after the concrete was in and it was very hard to park a car in that one. I think they finally sold it to some guy that had a couple of Volkswagens. That metal thing that's sticking up right in the center of the second, well, in both pictures, I guess, is a, is a, um, a hold down. And it goes into the concrete after the, just right after the concrete is placed. And it goes down in and anchors into the concrete. And after the frame is, is installed, it's nailed to the, uh, to the frame so that it holds the framing to the foundation. That's a, a wind resistant construction. Uh, um, issue. Okay, this is a pretty simple plan right here. Uh, you can see that the uh, dotted lines going uh, across the page and up and down the page, those are the beams. That's a typical um, uh, ID for a beam. And then each one of those arrows comes out, that's a cable placement. And those are all things that you check. And you see on the bottom left, there's a cross through that section. That is an add-on section that's like an option that the buyer can, uh, I have no idea what it would, probably a, some kind of a room, maybe a study on the front end there or something. Um, and there's what it looks like on the ground. Now this particular, the, the, the wood that you see is called forms. Everything else is called makeup with the exception of the plumbing that you see sticking up. Now across the top of this, it's pretty unusual to see uh, wire mesh. That's six by six wire mesh that stiffens the foundation even more. And they use it in areas that uh, are real susceptible to bending. And I don't think I've got any slides on this. Maybe I should add them for the next time, but the, the best or, or the most structural foundation shape is a square or a rectangle. It's got no bends. And then when you uh, make the footprint into an L, then you've got a plane of weakness going uh, across the, the uh, elbow of the L. And then one that's a U-shaped, that's got two planes of weakness for the same reason. So many times they will stiffen it, the U's and the L's in those areas. Those um, red and white uh, small pipes that are sticking up next to the shorter uh, white PVC, those are water lines. Okay. I want to uh, you know, reinforce that, that you're not gonna be capable of inspecting one of these guys in a, in a short uh, two hour learning session. You need to have a PTI certification, Post-Tension Institute certification, in order, in order to get your basis. It also would be important for you to have a mentor. In other words, somebody that you ride along with 
almost like an apprenticeship program to where you can actually see uh, translate what's on paper to what's on the ground and what you see many times on the ground. And one final thing, and this is, I have a, a good friend inspector uh, who lives close and he calls me a lot and says, you know what, I'm arguing Mike with this, uh, with this builder about this and so and this and so doesn't necessarily have to be a foundation issue, could be a framing issue uh, because we both do those as well. And what he has done is put himself in the position of an intermediary between him, uh, between his client and uh, the builder. That's not your job. Your job is to observe and report. Please remember that you will, it's just a spiraling loop. You have no enforcement power with the builder whatsoever. So you just, have your client there, explain to them why you're calling stuff, put it on the report and let this report speak for itself. If the builder decide, and this goes really for any type of inspection, but if the builder or the seller says, no, um, I'm not gonna do it, or no, I don't have to do it. Just because the state of Texas has adopted certain codes doesn't mean there's any enforcement and certainly it isn't you. So don't get in that, position because it's a no win. Okay, materials. These are the materials that go into a uh, post-tension foundation. We've talked about the forms. The cables are also called tendons. We have anchors for each end of the uh, tendon. We have wedges on one end. We'll learn what that is. Chairs that hold it up off the plastic and in the middle of the concrete. And we have cat heads that uh, <laughs> it's a good place to take care of the stray cats in the neighborhood, I guess. We'll, we'll learn more about that. We've got a moisture barrier. That's that plastic. And we've got, again, the forms and the floats. And the floats that uh, step up into the house from the front porch and, and the patio and maybe even a sunken a garage or a sunken living room, uh, the, uh, uh, maybe a sunken shower, those are all called floats. Okay, you start out by scraping the vegetation off the lot. It's a requirement of the code. It's a requirement of PTI. I'm, I'm sure they were talking about weeds that are uh, waist high, but scrape the vegetation is scrape the vegetation and there you are. Then you put a footprint consisting of wood all the way around. One of the things that you'll wanna check for is to make sure it's braced adequately. They will then uh, fill this form with uh, bank sand. And that's not clay, and that's not sharp sand, that's not playground sand. That's actually defined as stand off of a river uh, bed. And it's more soil than it is really <clears throat> sand. And the reason why is because it compacts really well. If you put clay in there over time, that will compact. And after the concrete is, is uh, placed, it will leave voids underneath the concrete that we sure don't want. We want this foundation to be sitting right on the dirt. <clears throat> right just to the left of the brick there, just to note for you that those three stakes, one of them's behind the brick, 
and with the uh, horizontal boards on them. Those are called batter boards. That's the very first thing that the uh, form sitter will do. He'll put one on each corner of the of the uh, of the footprint that he's fixing to install, so that he has the outside uh, walls and corners all marked. And then he puts string lines between them. Kind of an ingenious, very simple, been used for eons, ages, and centuries. A lot of what we get on our home building, you should know, comes from the uh, the mason um, profession, which of course is very old. Okay, we're looking at a ditch here or a beam, and it's you see the form board on the top. So we have um, a uh, an exterior beam right here. There's a few things that I want you to notice. That rusty looking thing. Um, at the end of the red cable, up and down red cable, is um, uh, an anchor. And you, if you look closely, you can see a couple of big honker nails that nail it into the form board. And just between it and the form board, there's a black thing called a pocket former. And that is the thing that you sometimes see on a pre-owned home where you can see in there and the cable is exposed. That's also the end called the live end that they do the uh, um, uh, post-tension stressing or tensioning. You see that this beam has a, a, a bottom cable and a top cable. So the engineer feels like he needs to uh, have this super, super uh, stiff. So he's decided two cables in this beam. And the, at the bottom, you see a chair, that's that black thing, and it's wired to the cable, that's important, and it's sitting straight up between the cable and the plastic. Now, if you are not in a beam, but yet you are on the plastic, you only got about four inches of concrete layered right there. So it's really important that that, um, that cable be suspended right in the middle of that four inches. And that chair, uh, provides that that support where it doesn't move. If it's not tied, that heavy concrete will blow that chair right out of there and then that cable will be sitting on top of the uh, plastic and there will be zero, and I mean zero, no reinforcement in that area. Hey Mike. Yo. Okay, we got a question. Can you, Yo. you point these things out, can you, can you move your mouse to indicate exactly what you're talking about to them? I do have a mouse. Can you see my red mouse, uh, my white mouse, guys? Can you can you make it larger? I, I don't know. Like Let me see what I can do here. And someone was asking, uh, how do you know the overall thickness of the slab? Okay, I will ink color. Let's just. Uh, I don't know if this will do it or not. We'll see. Yes, it's the size of it more than the color of it, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to see arrow options, visible, hidden, automatic. I'm not seeing anything. It'll make it bigger, Paul. Okay, that's all right. Just do it. There you go. You can see it a little bit there. But yeah. Okay. All right. So anyway, get out of here. What? What is this action here? Now I don't have a pointer anymore. How oh, bummer. Okay. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. Look at that bad boy. 
We got it covered. You can tell I'm a better inspector than I am a PowerPoint guy, right? Yeah. All right, let's see. Uh, what so was the, the overall thickness of the slab is generally how thick on a post-tension foundation. Okay, when you arrive, you see a nail right there. <laughs> there will generally be, and we may have a picture of it as we go along, but there will generally be a string line from the top of the foundation on one side, uh, diagonally across it. That's how you tell. You will be able to measure easily with a tape measure excuse me, how, how deep the foundation's uh, concrete will be. It goes right across the top of the foundation. Okay, can you, it goes right about from here. Can you show again what the chair was so everyone will know what the chair is? Sure, okay. The string line would be attached maybe right here and go right straight across to here. So you can easily see and this is something that uh, the uh, makeup man is required to do. Okay, this is the chair. That black thing, okay? And then it's tied right across there. You can just barely see it. Uh, and then that's the anchor and that's the pocket former. We'll look on the outside of this pocket former um, in a little while at another picture. Also, I wanna call you, call your attention to the water in the beams. No, no, big time. It dilutes the concrete that sits in that beam. And remember, this: the beams are the load-bearing members of this foundation. The exterior walls will all have a, a beam underneath them to carry that weight. And that, you know, is many times brick or stucco, um, certainly siding, and then the framing. And the interior walls that carry loading also have beams on them. You saw that it's kind of a grid work on the, uh, on the previous slide. Anyway, if they have water in here, we, the water needs to be removed before uh, the pour begins, the placement begins. And as there's been so much water in there that we've had cave-in, which also needs to be cleaned out. So those are two items that you would certainly call on an inspection. Any other questions there, Paul? Uh, Paul went to get a cup of coffee. No, I, I had to unmute myself, Mike. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, okay. let's, let's, well, let's see. I do have a couple of questions popped up. Uh, what's the piece of rebar in the trench? Good idea. It, you can't see it too well, but there's a wire tie that holds the uh, that cable off the bottom of the beam. Again, it needs to be suspended in the beam concrete. Yeah, if it, if it says on the bottom of the dirt there, it's not giving you any enforcement for the right. concrete at all. Uh, right. someone, someone's asking, should that moisture barrier be in the grade beam? In the, in, oh, good question. It probably is. I think I see some dark right here. It would not go up this side because this is, remember, this is the exterior of the, of the foundation, but it generally goes to somewhere in that, that area. All of this should be covered. But I submit to you by by because of the rain, this is a very messed up foundation. Okay, I had one other question for Mike. Said, how do you know the pour is solid and not honeycombed? How do you know? Yeah. The, the well, it's placement first. So let's get our terminology. It's very important. We never pour. We place, um, and you don't. And the way they take care of that, though, when they're placing the concrete is <laughs> they have what's known as a vibrator. It's um, 
kind of a little motor uh, that's uh, uh, gas powered and it's got a long wand on and they stick it down into the concrete, mostly in this area right here along the, uh, along the uh, exterior walls of the foundation. And it, it literally vibrates the liquid into the rock so that you don't have the honeycombs. The other way that's more common and cheaper is they come along the outside and beat on the outside with a big sledgehammer. And it just moves the, the uh, soup, if you will, in the, in the concrete uh, into the pockets that we call honeycombs. Is that it? Uh, so those are beams not reinforced in this picture? The beams are reinforced. That's reinforcement and that's reinforcement. Absolutely. That's on the top of the beam and that's the bottom of the beam. And the answer is absolutely. Another question says, often see two cables run close together instead of one at top and one at the bottom. Is that close, correct? Close together on, it depends on the plans. The engineers do some strange stuff. Sometimes you'll see rebar down here instead of a cable. Sometimes you'll see two cables down here. So when you see that type of thing going on where it's not just one on the bottom and one on the top, you can pretty well know to yourself, it's not something you need to, to tell anybody, but that this is soil that really moves a lot. And, the, and the, the engineer was struggling to put enough reinforcement into this concrete to where it will not move. It'll be as stiff as possible. Please remember that concrete in and of itself is not structural. It's only structural after you have reinforcement in it. And in the case of cables, it's not structural until this cable has been tensioned and this cable has been tensioned and this cable has been tensioned. And we will talk about that in a little bit. Okay, so someone's asking, how do you address the deficiencies with the builder, do you do it right then, or how do you how do you handle it? No, we we talked about that. You're not the intermediary. If you put yourself in the intermediary spot, I can't help you. You know what's right and you know what's wrong. You put it in your report and make that available to your client and ask him to pass it along to the builder. <clears throat> if the builder, it's it's so simple. If the builder decides he's not going to do it, he does not have to follow any of your instructions. The reason that you do these inspections is the same reason you do a trek inspection. It's to provide conditions of the property to your, your client, period. It's not to fight with the builder. It's not to try to talk him into it. But your answer, I mean, he's going to come back and he's going to go, no, we're not going to fix the cave-in. And uh, so what your, your, your simple response to your client is, okay, if you're not going to do that, because remember that you've already explained to your client why it's important because the beam depth is no longer, I don't know, 28 inches. It's now 26 and 25 in this area. So this is a weak point of the foundation. So your client should ask for a letter from the, uh, from the uh, design engineer stating that this is okay to be here. It's not your call to say it's okay to be there. You are not an engineer. That's good, Mike. Hey, we're getting a lot of questions popping up, so that's good. You're getting a lot of interaction here. Good. Uh, one question is, how long does it take for the concrete to cure before they should start framing? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's an opinion thing, okay? Most of the 
those plants we looked at, they, they say a lot of things, guys and girls, uh, a lot of things. And one of them is no masonry. Another thing is many of them will say it's okay to start framing. My humble opinion, I mean, if you've ever looked at a frame package drop on the ground, it's pretty big, dude. It's a lot of weight. And to put that much on an unreinforced foundation is a big mistake. And if I were buying a home uh, from any builder, that would be in my contract with them, that they would do nothing until the, the tensioning of the cables uh, occurred. But they do it every day. They put a frame on it. And frankly, as a builder, I put a frame on it, stupidly, because I didn't know at that point. I have... I've become become a lot smarter as an inspector than I ever was as a builder. I'm maybe embarrassed or happy to to let you know. Uh, my humble opinion is nothing on it. But okay. the engineer's rule. One more question on it, Mike. It says when the guys take a wheelbarrow and haul concrete to the back of the building and dump it or pour it rather, is that pouring or is that placement? And what what is this concrete? going to be eventually could be a patio could be a back porch attached to the house okay it's uh it's <laughs> it's a combination of the two to be honest with you and truly if it's a, a patio that's not monolithic with the foundation uh it's not structural any anyway if you look at um if, if you're fortunate enough to be there and watch any of them place it seldom is there any reinforcement. It's usually just four inches of concrete anyway, so it's not structural. Okay, another one says, please clarify to folks that a letter from an engineer is not valid unless it's stamped with their seal. Duly noted and absolutely right. Any engineer, if he's gonna make a statement, he needs to be willing to put his stamp and his signature on it. Good point. And shouldn't the engineering drawing specify the wait time for concrete? For wait time for stressing? Well, it says for the curing. Oh, for curing. Uh, well, the truth be known is foundations cure for 30 years. But in order to be cured enough to um, uh, tension, the engineers, every, every plan that I've ever seen says seven to 10 days. They gain about 60 to 70% of their strength in the first seven to 10 days and about 90 to 95 in the first 30. And then they spend the next 30 years doing the next 10%. Okay, and someone's asking how, how soon should these tendons be stressed? Seven to 10 days. Okay, and someone's saying should we report a deficiency if the chair is not tied or laying or if it's laying on his side. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so if we do not do it, how do we make sure the foundation is flat after it's placed? <clears throat> read that one more time, Paul. I'm going to put in my words, Mike. It's hard to read the statement here. They want to know how you know the foundation is flat after they poured it or it's level. Well, this, that was pretty easy. There is no level foundation in the world. It's poured by human beings and there's no straight edge that'll span any foundation that I've ever seen. Honestly, I, you're gonna laugh, but I have seen concrete finishers who used 
a fire hose made out of rubber filled with water so it was wet or weighted and walk it from one side of a foundation to another just to get it as flat as possible. But there, there's no such thing as a, as a perfectly level foundation. Um, as we proceed on, I'm gonna show you a few tricks to make sure that at least we get started in that right direction. But maybe I should take just a moment and remind you that you're not gonna be here during the placement of the concrete unless your client wants you to. What, what And I, I will do that, you know, if they want me to watch the pour, I, I frankly work for a couple of engineers that I go out and watch the pours. And oops, I just committed a sin. I said pour instead of placement. I watch the placements and I sit there for three hours and I make pretty good money doing it. And uh, then I go on to the house, but that's for an engineer who wants the concrete watched as it's being placed or, or maybe poured, depending. But for a client, you're gonna be there like the day before the placement. And so you're not gonna necessarily watch the concrete go down, uh, watch what happens to these chairs, uh, supervise the mixing of the barrel, not that anybody would ever pay attention to you as a third party inspector, because you've got no enforcement powers. Just kind of remember what your place is here. You're, you're not an enforcer, but what you can do and what I, I do all the time is I want, I personally want my clients with me for all inspections, including especially for this one. And these guys, these uh, clients that are buying a new home, they are hungry to know all about their home that they can find out 90%, 99% of them. And so I kind of explain as we go through, kind of like I'm doing to you, the, 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 the reason why, or the things that I'm calling out as deficient and why. And so when they come back, I, I encourage them to come back on the day of the placement and see if they're all corrected. They've got enough um, uh, knowledge to see if they're correct. And they've got the report that I generated to see if they're correct. But, you know, divide the line between when you're going to be there and when you're not going to be there, because you're not going to supervise the poor. And even if you did, the concrete finishers would go, who is this gringo? All right, Mike. Good, good, good answer, man. Appreciate the interaction. Uh, got four more questions that's popped up. Said so, broken bricks are no good for chairs. Broken bricks are no good for chairs. In other words, they got broken bricks placed to hold the tendons up instead of uh, chairs. Creates a void in the concrete. No, no. And what about the plumbing pipes where these tendons go across? Do they yeah. need to separate them? Yeah, they do, and uh, let's uh, let's hold that one until we get to that picture. Uh, another one says, I've seen multiple foundations poured and they are framing within three days. When I ask, they say the concrete is infused with a chemical to speed up the process. Do you have an opinion on that? I do. As a builder, I never poured with any admixtures. That's known as an admixture. And got no idea what kind of... Uh, chemical that they put in it or or not but i can tell you any admixture will weaken concrete and i would i would never buy a home from any builder that used admixtures just period i i described concrete to you it's aggregate about an inch and a half it's sand it's cement and it's water and that's it Okay, another question. During the first year of new construction, I saw cracks on the foundation slab. What is a possible root cause? 
Good, good point. And I, we've all seen those uh, most likely. It could be, okay, for the first seven to 10 days, if you kind of recall what you've seen out in the field, seldom do they ever put a grade down that will run the water away from a foundation. You know, in, in, in uh, pre-owned homes, we always want the water to move away. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, same thing on, on in our situation right here, especially here, because the foundation is not reinforced in that first seven to 10 days. And then you put the weight of the frame on top of it and it's liable to move even more so. And so when you're assessing cracks in a foundation, whether it's young or old, it's the same criteria you should, should be using when you assess one on a pre-owned home. Grading and drainage is your biggest cause of foundation movement period. But you, um, you know, if a, a misinstalled uh, engineered foundation that's, that's, again, not installed correctly or has water in the beams or cave-ins like we're looking at here is also problems. On a pre-owned home, you, excuse me, yeah, on a pre-owned home, you don't have the nicety of, of being able to have that information. But when you go back on a frame uh, to do the framing inspection, if you do those, you know what, what condition the foundation was the day you inspected it. And then you have hopefully your, your uh, a client who, who uh, went and watched the concrete placement itself and can tell you what was and was not fixed and encourage them to do that. They can be your assistant inspector, absolutely. Okay, Mike, so whenever we find something serious during our inspection, what's the buyer's recourse? What do, you, what do we recommend? Okay. When you find a deviation from the engineer's plans or the Post-Tension Institute's uh, um, uh, guide to installing post-tension uh, foundations, there is no good or bad. It's wrong or it's right, period. There are no worse or better. Now I, I say that, and I have found foundations where they're missing a cable. That's pretty. That's that's probably at the top of the priority list. There, I found um, foundations. Let me get my pointer here. This is so cool. I got my pointer. Thanks, Paul. Where I I stand right here, and I sight down this wall right here, and I can tell it's high here and low down here or I can tell this whole area bows out. I mean, those are big deals too. We've all been on pre-owned homes where the, the brick does not always sit right on the brick ledge. Sometimes it, it uh, goes inside the brick ledge and sometimes it's hanging off the brick. That's un, un, um, un, um, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking at? Straight, not straight forms are, are what, what allows that to happen. Structurally, that's probably not an issue, but cosmetically, it's going to be ugly because the bricklayers, they know how to make a straight line. They use a string line and it's fail safe. These guys, nobody checked it. You know, another thing, just so that you know, most builders right now, unlike when I was building, they use turnkey um, contractors to go all the way from dirt to foundation placement. That sounds like a real cool thing, but the builder has relinquished 
I'm sad to say, all responsibility and control from the basis of this, their client's uh, investment. And they put it all in the hands of a subcontractor, which is kind of scary. And I can tell you doing engineered uh, engineering inspections, that those guys are absolutely way off being perfect, way off being perfect. That, that goes to my next question someone posted. Mike said, the state requires a builder to be on site for all placements, right? Uh, nope. Yeah, a lot of times, just the concrete people there, they don't have an engineer on site. They don't have a builder on site. No one's watching them. Well, your famous thing, Paul, will be that the uh, client will say, well, the builder said he's going to have an engineer on site during the placement of the concrete, so he'll take care of all this stuff. Read my lips. I know you can't see him, but he is not an engineer. He is an engineer's, we'll call him a helper. I'm not an engineer. I've been doing this a really long time and I've got the certifications to back me up. But most of these guys, you know, are $50 an hour guys. And they go out there and they just uh, sit on the hood of their car and watch the gray stuff go down on the ground. Not a good thing. Okay, one of the engineers online, Mike, says that clay bricks for supports are not permitted. Say that one more time. Clay bricks for supports are not permitted. That's in line with what I just said. Uh, the question popped back up again. Apparently, we didn't answer it good enough. It says, we report serious deficiencies to the clients. Then what is the buyer's recourse? What do we recommend? Well, the buyer's recourse, and especially in this day of the uh, of the seller controlling everything in these real estate transactions. I know you guys have seen it. It makes me crazy. Three-day option periods and such to walk away from the, the sale. Okay. Uh, in fact, I, I will tell you that I, I do expert witnessing as well. And there was uh, a foundation uh, that was cracking and moving away. And uh, it was from a, a big box builder and he refused to give these guys their uh, their money back. I mean, it was the, the crack in this foundation was literally an inch wide. It was one section of the foundation was moving away from the other. I did not do the foundation inspection on this one. This was a finished home. And so uh, uh, the guy took him to court and he made a lot of money. So die. Go ahead. Sound like Flex Seal could have solved that issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of glue, Elmer's. <laughs> okay, it said with reference to hairline cracks and new foundations, uh, can you specify if it's an actual crack or if it's just shrinkage? <laughs> good, good question. That's that's the favorite word that the builders use is a shrinkage crack or a curing crack. Um, cracks um, that are have any gapping at all are cracked all the way through. There's no shrinkage, there's no curing, they're cracked. We see them all the time. That's a normal, uh, uh, something is a normal observation for us. Uh, what they're doing really is what makes the difference. If you look at a crack and you kind of get away from it, look at it and see if one side of the crack, <clears throat> the concrete is not level with the other side or you see it gapping the deflection that I just talked about, or maybe it's even offsetting. One side is lower of the crack is lower than the other side. Uh, then you got some issues going on. 
Wow, Mike, I keep getting questions, man. I've got two more good ones for you. <laughs> we may not make it through this, Paul. I'm telling you, what specifics should we look for and report if we see a builder is installing a concrete encased electrode rebar in the uh, uh, in the grade beam? In other words, we've got a rebar for the concrete encased electrode. Is there something we should report? Yeah, tell them it's there and ask them to confirm with their uh, the, their uh, electrician that this is made from rebar, excuse me, from ground rod material, which is not rebar. And if it needs to go eight inches to the ground as specified by NEC. I, I, am, I am personally- and I'll let you get back at it here. Okay. I had two more pop up. Do you <laughs> plumbing stub up locations? Builders break out concrete to relocate plumbing all too often. If we don't measure plumbing, do you tell your clients that you're not measuring where the plumbing fixtures are going to be going? Yes, I do. I, I, I do not do that. And I do say that on my report. And I also say, I mean, I put it on the back of the builder. The builder has to be responsible for some of this. I've already told you that they're not. Most of them being very responsible until they get to the frame package. And they go, oh my gosh, we've got to break out. And they think really nothing about breaking out, unfortunately. But if you ever look at a set of plans, there's not an engineer in the world that will allow for breakouts. And any breakout should be done under the supervision of a structural engineer. Okay. One of the, one of the famous ones, let me just tell you, we'll get to it a little bit later, but you put under uh, concrete, water lines uh, underneath the concrete and electric lines un underneath the, the concrete and sometimes gas lines underneath the concrete and actually sometimes uh, a downdraft vent underneath the concrete. Uh, all of those should be on the plans and all of those should be per engineer specs and none of them should be allowed to be installed after the concrete is already placed because it bastardizes the concrete or the foundation. Uh, Mike, we've got one more question, and uh, then about two minutes, we need to take a break. Okay. Does a rebar, rebar supporting the tendon in the beams need to be taped with duct tape? Is, a tape? is it taped with a contact with the earth or above the vapor barrier? Conta okay, you're, uh, I'm going to assume that they're talking about... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm assuming we're talking about that rebar and it does not need to be taped. It is not in contact with uh, that um, cable right there. And frankly, its job is done once the concrete is placed. So it, if it could be pulled out, you could pull it out, but nobody pulls it out. It'll just rust away. Okay, good. All right, man, you got some more. We, well, I'm gonna mute myself and you've got uh, about a couple of minutes before we take a break, so go ahead. Okay, all right. We've preempted guys and girls, uh, we've preempted some of uh, my pictures. So when we get there, why we will uh, probably spend less time on them. That's what a cable looks like. Seven strand, half inch steel cable, that's it. That is a specification that's made by the engineer. And that's something that you should check. Those are a pile of anchors. Those ones, we saw the rusted one in a couple of pictures back. And uh, we'll look at those again. Notice the nail holes as two nail holes and then one for the cable to go through. Those are wedges. 
we'll talk about those, just kind of identifying things for you as we talk about them later. That's where the wedge goes. See, it fits neatly in there. And we have two ends of each cable. One is the dead end, and that one already has the wedge installed in it with a cable sticking out of it. The live end has no wedge. It's got that black, black pocket former sticking out of it. And that's the end that we'll do the tensioning from. All right, there's a look at a beam. We got a lot of water in this beam, as you can see. We've got no ties on that chair. So as the concrete pushes it away, this is gonna, probably the next one's about three or four feet this way. And that whole thing will lay right on the, uh, right on the plastic, no bueno. All right, let's continue on with this photo here. So, cause you can see the uh, cable running to the anchor, to the pocket former and through the form board. And then you see the cable tail coming out this way. In a little while, we're gonna see a stressing machine that attaches on this end of it and pulls this to about 20,000 clips. That's, uh, you, you don't wanna be in the way if that thing pulls loose. That's a lot of kips. And um, to our engineer friend in the audience, uh, you can define a kip for us. It's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of PSI, but there is uh, an equation to get from one to the other. And frankly, I don't know what it is, so whatever. Uh, up here, you see we have a cable down, running down to the bottom and one running on the top and you see they both come out. So they'll, both of those will need to be stressed. And then you can get a better look at the uh, plastic as it comes down and goes underneath the grade beam. Um, and there how the water has messed that one up. But one, one final thing before we moved on from this is remember that this is all bank sand underneath this plastic. So when you fill these with water, it seeps or wicks right up underneath here. And if you've ever gone uh, uh, swimming in a mud bottom pond, you'll know that your feet start sinking into the uh, mud. That mud moves and so does this. And that's why I said that as soon as it's ready for concrete, it needs to, the concrete needs to be placed uh, with, with uh, no waiting uh, because it immediately begins to deteriorate. Let's go to the next one. Oh, we got a close up. This is the dead end, okay? And notice we have it, the cable taped all the way up to within one inch of the dead end right here. And then we have some big old honker nails uh, that are uh, attaching it to the uh, foreboard. We need two of them always. And notice there's one inch in between the uh, uh, foreboard and the end of the cable, which is pooching out there. It's full of mud because this got rained on, but this form got rained on. Uh, you have done pre-owned homes where you've got little red rust spots on the, uh, on the uh, foundation wall. It's because that guy was right up against there and it's rusting and that's not a good thing. Look at the cave in here. Pretty bad. Tie, wire tie. We love wire ties. Okay, here's one that's not nailed very well. And when this one tries to be pressed, stressed or tensioned, this is gonna pull out. 
Here you can see the cable end hanging out and there's that little wedge we talked about right there. Those come, the dead ends come from the uh, manufacturer um, already installed. So they're good to go. And for some reason I got two pictures of that same thing. Okay, let's talk chairs. Everybody needs to be able to sit down, but not on that bad boy. And we're gonna talk about cat heads too. That's uh, just a name that they call these things, but it's a vernacular. And I'm, I'm talking to you primarily in vernacular that everybody on the job site should understand, including our friends, the engineers. There's a cat head in action. Now you remember we saw the, the uh, cable tails sticking through a couple of uh, pictures ago. That's where these guys clamp onto this so that when the concrete tries to push this around inside the form, it won't be able to, it'll be stopped by this. However, this needs to be right up against there and this needs to be right up against there. Otherwise it does no good at all. That would be a deficiency. We have a form board here that's not secured very well. See how this one is a different plane than this one. And that's what, when you see pre-owned homes, that's what you see when you have uh, variations in the uh, sidewall of the exterior beam of the foundation. Okay, we got a side view of a pretty much finished product with the commander hanging back there. Hello, commander. Anyway, you see the, the cables running this way and running this way. There's that string line that somebody asked me, how do you tell? whether there's four inches, that's how you tell. You just walk up to that bad boy and put your tape on it and see if there's four inches between it and the plastic. All of these cables are taped all the way to the edge. That's a good thing. <clears throat> we should maybe say why these cables have a plastic around them. And the reason why is to allow the cable inside to move uh, when it's uh, tensioned. That cable grease is some nasty stuff. Do not get it on your clothes. You will pitch those clothes immediately. They are, it is, it is so nasty. <laughs> Whoops, let me move that out from it. Okay, now we're gonna talk about beams, sunken areas and step downs, gas and electric water drains in and under slab, piers underneath slab on grade, and drainage trenches. And there we go. Okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm moving a pop-up box. Whew, this is nice and bright. We can kind of tell what's going on here. There's your string line running across again. This uh, is a, a, a chair that's not tied. There are a few ties at the intersections but the ones in between are not tied. So when the concrete comes rushing across, it's gonna push that thing right out of there. It'll be gone. Um, here we're beginning to see some cables very close to the pipes. Those would have a chair installed, but to where the bottom of the chair is against the pipe. And then it of course would be tied because when those cables are tensioned, they try to straighten up and they can crack pipes. And that chair allows a little bit of uh, margin of error 
or leeway for that, that uh, cable to straighten out. This cable right here seems to be kind of roller coastering across. This would be a cable that's not installed with enough hand, what I'll call hand tension. It needs to be hand tight. And this very well could be one where those loose cat heads that we saw a few minutes ago, or a couple of slides back, have not been uh, put up against the form. And that's the reason it's so loose. But again, when that cable is tensioned, all of those bows are gonna to try to straighten out. Also, this is not generally in engineer's instructions, but generally speaking, these cables should go under and over and under and over and under and over. This one doesn't, it was laid all on top. So they didn't, it's just, uh, I will say uh, an industry standard or good workmanship. I don't know that it necessarily makes a lot of difference in structure. It's just a better way to do it. There we see a drain pipe crossing the beam, which is allowed, but we have to have another larger drain pipe on top of it as a sleeve to allow some movement between the this pipe and the concrete. There's not one there, by the way. That is a tub bucket, that set hole in the concrete that you see uh, when you look uh, underneath a, uh, a tub, if you're lucky enough to have an access, a port and a home that you're, a pre-owned home that you're inspecting. Boy, there's a cable that's real close. Come on. Okay, there we go. All right. You remember that bridge that we saw that didn't meet? That kind of looks like it might be that bridge that we didn't meet. That better be on, be on my engineer's plans or I'm calling it. I, I question whether this engineer should have made this a very gradual beam that, that would actually meet. And I, I frankly don't remember whether it was wrong uh, per the plans or not but there's a pretty good um, example of what I would call out as a deficiency if the plans didn't say it could do that. Your plans, are, your plans are your guideline. Go ahead, Paul. I do have a couple of questions pop up here. Okay. Get back where it was, I think I lost it. <coughs> hmm. Yeah, let me go down, I lost my spot there. Uh, gas lines, do they need, uh, being conduit have a vent when they're in the slab? The vent is on the exterior wall and in conduit, yes. <clears throat> okay, how far from the end of the cables or the tendons can you use duct tape to cover without the plastic casing? One inch. Oh, how far from the end of the cable? Well, it, you know, they, the, the general rule is, is a foot or less. Otherwise, you need to put another piece of uh, sheathing on it. Yeah, and that can cut the sheathing and, and put it on where one's been missing or something, can't it? Yes. I uh, said, so can you go over more about the cat head, what it's doing, and why it wasn't butted up to the form that you mentioned earlier? Uh, remember, we talked about how wavy this cable was right here, okay? 
The reason is, is because it's not hand tensioned, not machine tensioned, but hand tensioned when they install it. And it became even looser because the cat heads that they put down here on the end, when it was installed are not butted up against the form. So it has plenty of play. This actually could have been six inches initially. And then as people moved around and, and adjusted cables inside, it could have pulled down to here. It really should have been up against the form board all along. Okay, uh, let's see, where you go? We got that one, we got that one. All right, another, uh, someone said that the tendons are stretched to 33,000 PSI. I don't think that's correct. It's, it's, it's a matter of kips and it's up to the engineer and he'll have it on the plans. It's not something that we necessarily get involved with. We, we, I, I am there when they, after they have stressed when I'm working for the engineer that I work for, <clears throat> excuse me, but I'm not there during the stressing. Um, generally I have been, but generally I'm not. So it's not something you need to worry about necessarily, but we'll talk about that in a little while. Okay, let's see. Okay, I think you've answered them, Mike. Thanks. Okay. All right. Here's a uh, very patriotic foundation. Um, and this gives a, a, a pretty good uh, example of a patio on the back of a house. <laughs> Excuse me, you'll notice how it starts at two by fours here and goes down to two by sixes here. That's because you have a patio that slopes to drain to the, to the uh, yard. That's good. And this one has a brick ledge all the way around it. That's his flat board right here. So you'll have brick on this patio, very fancy house. Um, you never want to step on that board, ever. It will move. It's only nailed. You want to step on that, that uh, vertical, uh, vertically installed uh, one by uh, two by four uh, on the two by edge or a two by six or whatever it might be on the edge. Boy, they sure got colorful on that one, didn't they? There's uh, your electric line. That's going from the outside wall to a, uh, a an island and it will be an island sink. So you'd have to have uh, power to it. It is missing the water, however, which also needs to be installed and popped up right here. Um, this is one of those trenches that I was talking about, and you can see how it's not, no, I'm sorry, I, my, my, my bad, my bad. This is not a trench to drain the foundation. This is uh, when I arrived, the plumber had been there to put his, his um, a sewer. There's your sewer clean out right there, and it comes out here, and it needed to be open. This goes down probably 12 or 15 feet. It's a wonder that's not considered a hazard somebody falling in that a kid could drown. Anyway, it's full of water and it is draining the foundation anyway. You can see it's not draining it very well though, and it's full. I think this over here is the trench that they put in for to drain the rainwater. And maybe we'll get a peek at that in just a minute. Okay, inspecting beams, tenons, tub buckets, catheads, chairs, risers, undisturbed soil. 
and EGWD. I don't remember what that is now. What is that, Paul? Who knows? Oh, I know what it is. Electrical gas water drains. <laughs> I made myself an, uh, an abbreviation. I don't know what it is. Okay, this was a house that uh, Edward Robinson asked me in his absence to come and take a look at. And uh, it was over in the Spring Branch area of Houston. And it wasn't draining at all. So this one was like, really? This had a number of different complications. One was it wasn't high enough for the eventual finished floor to be able to even drain to the sleep street. But the other thing was it was not capable of uh, uh, holding concrete yet because it would have been completely diluted. And in addition to that, all of this water right here, remember is seeping into this and all of this subsidence is this pad or plateau going away? This one's gonna to have to be the cables removed, the plastic removed and completely reworked, probably heightened if it had if I had my way, but that was that was up to Edward. If you're out there, Edward, this was a treat. I got a good picture for, for the class today. And I'm telling you, it was bad. It was terrible. Lots of cave-in. I think we looked at this picture before. Cave-in. All right. There's a chair. How about that? They put a chair on this one. Bless their hearts. But they didn't tie it. So we'd like to have it tied. Here's a drain pipe coming across. You see we have an opening in the moisture barrier, the plastic. That's no-no. It should be tarred and taped uh, so that water doesn't get down or the concrete doesn't get down inside here or bugs don't get up, any of the three. It also is missing a sleeve to go across here. Now these drain lines cannot go into a beam and run with the beam. That's huge no-no because where it's gonna go back into underneath a, a plateau or a pad, it's going to have uh, the ability to crack when any if any movement takes place, and on this end too, where it goes in. So the, that would be a big no-no, and that would be a deficiency that you should call. And I think we already we, we've preempted some of these pictures that I'm going back to by needing chairs here, 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 on both sides of this tub bucket. And on this side of this tub bucket and on that one, this one I'd need a lot of chairs. A root. We don't do roots. Roots got to be removed at the time of the makeup. They just don't mix well with concrete and they they place or displace the concrete where there ought to be and, and reduce the strength of our foundation. No roots. My couple questions. Is duct tape allowed? to be used still the plastic sheathing overlap. Yes. Is a moisture barrier required under a patio or a garage floor? Under a garage floor, yes. If the patio is monolithic with the foundation, yes. If it's just an independent foundation, no. Can you speak about when termite pretreatments are how they're done? <laughs> sure. It's an opinion question, guys. I think it's a marketing ploy, but uh, at this stage is when they're done. They come and spray it on top 
and go and have a nice day. They charge about 300 bucks for it probably. And, and uh, it, uh, in, in my humble opinion, does no good at all. It's a little bit like the, uh, excuse me, the uh, treatment, the, the green stuff that you see on frames that goes up the framing about a two foot. I don't know that it does any good because I think it's, it's half-life is, uh, is uh, so short that it um, uh, just doesn't last long enough to be of any value. But it sure looks pretty and impresses all the clients. It, it's a little bit, in my humble opinion, I got a lot of humble opinions, by the way, um, uh, like those uh, little tubes that go in, you see on the side that the, the, the pus control guy can come, come and pump uh, pesticide in through the walls. Well, if, if you don't have a sheetrock nail or, or smart aleck framer or a drywaller or insulator uh, who doesn't cut them, they probably work pretty good. But I think the chances of that are probably uh, slim. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Uh, another question is, are builders hiring you to protect them from the foundation contractors? Uh, let, me, let me say this first. Notice that this cable is laying right on the plastic. I would have called that as a deficiency. And the question is, are builders hiring me? No. As I told you, the builders, and, and I mean every single one of them, because I do about 50% brand new homes is, is, is my mix. Um, every one of them really does not even look at a lot until it has a slab finished on it, a concrete slab on it when they're ready for framing. So they, they just lay it all back on the, uh, on the contract, the turnkey contractor, I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Back in my day, if I, as a superintendent, left a job site during a concrete placement, I would be fired. Yep, that's not the case today. Uh, since this is not a trek inspection, do you use, still use the term deficiency? Absolutely. It's a good word. It's a solid word. Uh, is the inspector responsible for drainage issues if the pad is dry at the time of the inspection? I have a note on there that talks about the potential for rain and all of the items that we've talked about so far that surround rain, uh, including the concrete needs to go down as soon as possible. So if I'm there on a Wednesday and it's done and they're not pouring till Friday, well, I mean, inspectors are always really cognizant of, of weather conditions. And if I, if I see any rain in the forecast, I'm gonna say that, but my, my report also says what needs to be watched out for. And if they're pouring it after a rain or if they pour it and there's water in the beams, it's gonna be, a a, the concrete is gonna be substandard. It's just gonna be diluted. It just can't help it. Okay. Uh... When, if ever, would you advise a client to request the foundation be cored to determine the specified compression strength has been achieved or exceeded? Well, it wouldn't happen at this stage. It would happen probably at the frame stage. And that one I was, I was telling you about where the crack was coming unglued, <clears throat> just, just to, to, uh, to kind of give you some other observations that were made. The top of the concrete was all sandy and it was coming off as you walked across it. Um, so it was obviously a bad mix. 
and the foundation was not staying together. I mean, it had a real rugged crack going front to back that was gapped about an inch. I could see the dirt underneath it. There was no plastic underneath it. And I advised the client, and I, I don't do this often, but I said, you probably need to make sure that your attorney is going to be able to win this case. And he needs to tell you what it is he needs to win it because this is not looking good. You need an engineer out here right away, not the design engineer, your own engineer. Okay. One, another one of our engineers online today said the summit hammer test is non-destructive for PSI estimates. Good. I'm not familiar with uh, the uh, protocols of it, but uh, I will take his word for it and mark it down and we'll look into it. Thank you. Okay. The moisture barrier only covers have the bottom of the beam in this picture. Is that okay? That's exactly the way it should be. Okay. So another one says they've seen this moisture barrier, like in your picture, go all the way up the outside area of that beam and stick outside where the slab will be. The moisture barrier will be showing after the slab's poured. Is that okay? It is not. And that builder has not looked at the engineer's plans. Okay. Uh, what type of inspection form do you use for phase inspection? Um, I made my own. <laughs> it's uh, actually one that you can see on my website. Uh, if you want to go look at sample reports, I believe I've got one on there. But it's one of my own design. It um, follows the format roughly of the Trek inspection, but not completely. So you can go take a look at it if you want to. I'm sure nobody in the audience will uh, plagiarize, will they, Paul? No, I'm sure they won't, Mike. It, it won't be posted online either. Right. <laughs> all right, that's all the questions I got right now, Mike. So go ahead. Okay, here we go. I have no idea how far through this we are. So we better, we're in our last hour. So we better, uh, let me know when we get to 30 minutes, Paul, please. Okay. Yeah, we'll do, Mike. Okay, thank you. Um, not sure. Uh, oh, you need to count the, <laughs> I should read what I've written on there. Count the, the lat, latitudinal and longitudinal. I'm not sure latitudinalism. I think that was a word that I made up. Longitudinal is, so that's a good word. Um, anyway, count the cables. Make sure you've got the appropriate cables according to what the engineer has said. Engineers are guide on this. You don't have the ability to say, well, we're missing one, one cable or, well, we're missing one beam. That's not your place. You are absolutely as prospect, uh, prescriptively guided as you ever have been in your life on this. No, no room for D. Oh, that's okay. We don't have a, uh, a cable here. No, sorry, not your call. Uh, we looked at this uh, wavy cable before and talked about it. So we will skip past that. And the cat is, we have discussed that, I think, ad adequately. Um, one of the things that I, I look at when I cruise up to a foundation is, hey, we got cables sitting out in front. Where are we missing cables in this foundation? It's kind of a, a heck of a clue for you to look at the cable count and look at it real closely against the foundation plans. There's a, a real close-up uh, close of a beam detail beam. And let me just grab my DLC. It says 12 inches wide here. 
and it says 30 inches deep, deep on this beam, okay? So this particular foundation needs 30 inches of concrete this way and 12 this way. That's the first thing that we look at. Also notice that the, the uh, cable does not go straight to here. It goes down a little bit. And it's a half inch cable, uh, tendon cable size. And it also calls out the, the uh, vapor barrier. There's the vapor barrier coming down here and stopping right there. Undisturbed soil, undisturbed soil. Okay, uh, just a, a brief one. This has always made me crazy. When you go into a, a subdivision, you see that the, uh, generally speaking, the lots all drain to the street before you put anything on them, like a foundation. And the streets are deeper than the lots normally if the if the developer has done a good job. So you go, where did all that dirt go when they dug it out of the street? And if you watch one being developed, you find out it went up on the lots. That's not my definition of undisturbed soil. But every engineer has on their plan saying this foundation will be placed on undisturbed soil, compacted fill, that's that bank sand I talked about, but undisturbed soil here, because remember, this is your weight bearing member. This is where all the weight's coming down and being translated into the, into the soil. Um, and yet they do it every day and the engineers allow it to happen. So that's a conundrum for me that I just haven't been able to reconcile. Just thought I'd give you the conundrum to carry with you. Okay, we got to tie down the rebar that we talked about, but we got to keep it up in the concrete, not on the plastic. Tub buckets. <laughs> okay, let me see if I've got one. No, I don't think I have one. Okay. All right. When, when you look at a plan, a foundation plan, you will never see a hole in the foundation where the tub drain goes down that's this wide, ever. There's no hole in foundations. There's not. The engineer has said that there's no hole in the foundations. And the reason why is because he expects the moisture barrier to go underneath it, as well as the concrete, four inches of it to go underneath it. You will forever see these tub buckets laying right down on the plastic because I mean, nobody enforces it. They look at me with crossed eyes like a deer in the headlight look whenever I say this when I go out there. But then I show them the plans and there's no hole in the foundation plan there. Oh my gosh, well, we've always done it this way. Well, you've always done it wrong. So, and I'm courteous. I just say, well, we're just found the, following the engineer's plans here. So. Let's do it right. It keeps the bugs and the water from coming in. You will recall on pre-owned homes, when you're lucky enough to have an access panel behind a tub and can look at the bucket, that's a great way for termites to get in, especially if there's water leakage from that drain. We don't like that. We don't want that. Always tie the wires. Anywhere where you got uh, a chair or a cable coming together, tie, tie that bad boy. Now notice that 
that nail and that nail seemed to be a little loose. So I'm going to submit to you that this cable needs to be pulled this way to provide an inch behind this thing between it and the foreboard. Otherwise, we're going to go get those little nasty rust spots on the edge of the foundation wall that we see a lot of times in pre-owned homes. That's a colorful plastic there, isn't it? Oh, we got exposed cable right here. Look at that nasty grease on it. Do not get that on your clothes, I'm telling you. Don't do it, don't do it. Excuse me. <laughs> Chairs every, every four feet is six inches within six inches of being. Okay, what am I talking about? Okay, every four feet, you're gonna put a chair at least and within six inches of any beam. So it doesn't fall off onto the plastic, obviously. See that one's not, that one's not. So it comes very close to the, uh, the plastic there. Okay, this is a uh, float. This is like probably the back of a garage where it steps up there. These cables, strangely enough, have the ability to float. And concrete being heavier than they are, it'll not only float them, but push them up. So they will many times be showing, not many times, but every once in a while you see them showing on a pre-owned home right at the step up. We invert a chair and put it underneath here and tie it. That's how we prevent that from happening. Also notice that this is laying on the plastic. And it looks like the plastic, if you, if you can kind of, I'm not sure you can tell from this perspective. Let me see if I've got a better picture. No, I don't. Uh, this slopes down to get under this step. And it should be continuing to slope down all the way to this edge. That's one of the reasons why it's laying right on the plastic here. The other reason is um, that there's no chair there. And there's a chair needful right up against the plumbing pipe riser. And there's a pipe going between the two, but it's not taped and there's no sleeve on top of it. The sleeve should have all of this stuff on it, but it should be, you should be easily be able to tell that there's a pipe covering a pipe. And this, uh, this sleeve just needs to go from one side of the plastic to the other. So you should have no problem identifying that it's there or not there. Um, one other thing, when we have a cable going underneath this bad boy, we need an inverted chair there as well. Upside down chair. Ooh, this is a cluster. I think we need a few more chairs and a few more ties and a little less wood and some ties on the chairs there. And this needs to be up off the concrete tied up off the concrete. We need some work on this bad boy. Okay, EGWD that I couldn't remember what the heck it was. Mind is a, is a terrible thing to waste, is it not? Okay, we need these for islands, island sinks, floor receptacles, uh, and the drain lines need caps on top of them. So we'll, we'll take a look at that. That's so concrete when it's placed uh, does not is not placed down the gaps. 
uh, down the risers. See, there's a nice little cap. Boy, that would be neat for one of those uh, concrete trucks to just dump that little hose right into there and fill that bad boy up. Not good. Lovely, we have a chair. This yeah. is a pigtail. Yeah. Hey, Mike, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you. We've got about 10 minutes left. Oh my gosh, what happened to my 30 minutes, Paul? You messed me around, okay. Don't you remember I told you? Oh no, I don't remember, brain damage. Okay, <laughs> this is water coming into a house. This is actually a really good uh, idea. It uh, prevents the water from being uh, exposed to freeze on the outside of the house, goes right up into the house, into the wall, into warm areas, we hope. Okay, there's a cap. I'm gonna move a little spryly because I wanna make sure that I've covered everything. We've, we've covered a lot through the questions. There's the underside of a foundation where it had to be replumbed. This was a, uh, a cast iron house from the uh, 60s uh, to begin with, kind of an interesting look at the reinforcement that's laying on the bottom of the concrete doing zero good. There's a uh, plumbing and uh, uh, that looks like a, a gas line coming up into an island, water line, electric line under slab. Those are anchor bolts that we put in to anchor the, the uh, framing to the concrete. Seven to days after tension, and we've talked about that. Let's skip into that. Here's the what the uh, uh, tensioning devices look like. It's just a, uh, a press and it's attached into the uh, uh, foundation and it just literally pulls it back. And before they do it, they paint it. So you can tell if, how far that they pulled it back even at that, we're kind of uh, trusting that they're doing that. That's what it looks like connected to the what, what we call an anchor. And after they finish and the engineer comes and checks it, they cut off the uh, nails and they cut off the cable. Sometimes we see both. And then they go back with non-shrink grout and grout the hole. One of the difficulties is grading and drainage. As I told you, that's uh, one of the uh, uh, premier causes for foundation movement and the way they're spot building. It's this one's established and this one's not. So when this one gets established, one of the two is going to have a problem most often. That's the way it looks. You've seen that before. That's the way it's supposed to look. We'll do that later or another time. Okay, we talked about cracks. That's got a gap. That goes all the way through. That is a crack. That's not a curing crack. That is not a settlement crack. Or excuse me, that is not a, a curing crack or a drying crack. It's a crack. That's a crack. And you can see it's it's gapped enough to put my card into it. That bothers me. That's cables showing through. They should not be showing through. So that weakens the foundation. That's the end of your dead end showing through where they didn't put it far enough back away from the uh, form board. And there's one that's hiding behind a concrete patio. That's what it looks like before they put grout into it. You see the wedge in there. They've uh, supposedly already stretched that, we hope. 
And that's one in a, an existing foundation that never was stressed. There's no wedge back there. You can easily see what a wedge looks like. That's it. Get down on your hands and knees and get your screwdriver out. That's a pre-owned home. Boy, that one never has had sufficient stressing. Oop, what are we doing here? Can't see what that guy is. Okay, there's one coming unglued. Uh, that's one of the indicators. Oh, I don't know why I've got that. Let's see. Oh, that one's pulling loose. So that indicates some foundation movement. We're, I guess, moving on to pre-owned homes. That's not a good cut in that, in that uh, barge rafter. Actually, that's a hip rafter. That's a, that's a lousy cut. That actually needs some bracing underneath it, I think. My humble opinion. Okay, corner chips. This was a blowout that took place and it's way more than a, 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 a corner chip, but there's your typical corner chip. And it's because there's no um, moisture barrier, thermal expansion barrier slash thermal, thermal whatever between the brick and the mortar and the concrete on the edge of a foundation, very typical. As long as the, the cable is far enough from it is usually not a settlement issue. Well, I got to work on those pictures. Okay, there's another one hanging out. Boy, that one's heavily rusted. That cable is probably going to require rethreading. In other words, they pull it out and replace it. That one's looking pretty bad. That one's looking pretty bad too. You can see the edge of it. And that's rebar on the edge of a foundation. And, and foundation or concrete is porous and water goes through and it hits steel, rusts it, and rust expands when it gets rusty and it pops the concrete out. It just does it. Okay, peering, we're gonna, there's some pictures of it, oh boy. Different kinds of peering, blowouts are always pretty exciting. That's a blowout. That's where the cable release tension in a big, quick hurry. And it's like a, 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 um, an explosion when that happens. This I saw in a Kingwood house, carpet raised. What the heck is all that all about? Well, there was a cable experience to blow out. And when it did, it ripped up the concrete. Get your nose underneath the furniture. Take a look around. Okay, do your job. It is what we do. There's a anchor that doesn't look straight with the exterior wall, and it's not. It's going to be a problem. Okay, Mike, we've got just a couple more minutes. I know you probably have a lot more slides to go, so... I'll just walk through them. Go ahead. This is one where they're fixing a, a blowout. You got any questions? Oh, no, no questions. I was going to say, you probably ought to share uh, if you got your email address and contact information or something you post up on the on the screen. Probably good for people to see because we've been being asked for your uh, website so that they can get that report format that you use for these inspections. I'll give you verbally. It's MLC Mike Larry Charlie inspections.com period, mlcinspections.com. Okay, good. Well, Mike, I want to tell you, it's a great presentation. I'm sorry we're not able to finish it, but uh, time is out, and we're going to have to switch over to the other presentation we've got coming up here at uh, uh, 10 o'clock with Don on roofing. So those of you that are online now, if you will, you, you are going to have to log out of this presentation and then at 10 o'clock, log back in on the presentation with Don Davison for the roofing class. Uh, so 
with that said, Mike, if you got any of the closing comments, I'll let you do that and then we'll end the meeting. Okay. All right. To do what uh, what you guys are and girls are, are here to do today is a very specialized inspection to avoid liability and do the best job for your for your uh, uh, clients. You need to have the certification to lean back on, and it's not code. It's a, a PTI certification, and you've got to have experience because, frankly, even PTI doesn't provide you uh, the experience to read plans and uh, get in the engineer's mind and uh, uh, adequately do an inspection like this. So your, your best option is a PTI certification and get with an inspector who's competent in doing this. Right, and PTI stands for Post Tension Institute, for those of you that don't know. All right, Mike, I appreciate you you're giving this presentation today, outstanding. Okay. Uh, we'll close this, so I'll give you just a couple of minutes for our attendees. If you have any comments on the class, uh, if you'd like to kind of tell us how Mike did, put it in the chat box and uh, we will watch those and listen to it. If Mike can improve on any areas, tell us what it is and we'll, we'll send it on to Mike. All right, thanks everybody for attending. And uh, Mike, thanks again for uh, presenting for us today. Hey, y'all be good. Bye. Bye-bye.